copy of the scriptures and let us return to Paul's letter to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one. This section is verses 12 through 17. We'll see how far we get this morning. But let's uh, let's read the entire section. Um, and the title of this message is the glory to God for his grace. Glory to God for his grace. Beginning in verse 12. First Timothy one verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man, because I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of the Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, verse 16, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And in verse 17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we acknowledge your word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I ask this morning that you would bless the instruction, the proclamation of your word, and that by it you would edify your people and you would come with saving mercies to those who do not know you. Be with me as I speak. Help us to hear and believe. We ask this in the blessed name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In our passage this morning, in our passage this morning, Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes his personal experience of the gospel. Here we have one of a handful of accounts of Paul's conversion to the Christian faith. So again, we have in these verses that, by the way, are sandwiched on either side with a thanksgiving and a praise, an acknowledgement of God's goodness and greatness in this gospel to the apostle, but he describes his personal experience, his conversion to the gospel. If you remember what we have seen so far in this letter, we've been moving through it. Paul has been concerned with keeping the church free from false doctrine and the teachers that promoted it. The doctrine promoted by the false teachers. And this is the connection from the past, the past or the previous section to where we're at now. The doctrine promoted by the false teachers threatened the biblical teaching of the gospel. Do you hear what I said? The false teaching of those false teachers threatened the biblical teaching of the gospel. And as Paul was in the previous section, he continues, that is, as he contrasted the teaching of the false teachers with apostolic doctrine, biblical doctrine, Paul continues this morning by contrasting, comparing the legalism, listen, the legalism of the false teachers and the free grace of God in the gospel. So consider that. That's what he's doing here. He's contrasting the legalism and of the false teachers, their false doctrine, and he's contrasting it with the true apostolic doctrine, the, the gospel and the free grace of God in the gospel. 
At the end of verse 10, you remember his language there? 1 Timothy 1, at the end of verse 10, he said, And if there is any other thing that is contrary, that's contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was, and notice his language here, which was committed to his trust, And so these things now are coming to head to head. And as he contrasts them, he will compare them of the legalism again of the false teachers and the true gospel of grace that Paul himself had tasted and experienced by faith. Francis Turretin, theologian Francis Turretin, speaking of uh, legalism, and how easily the gospel can be twisted and turned, said this, quote, The subject in controversy is not whether the law needed illustration, confirmation, vindication against the corruptions of the scribes and Pharisees and the perverse judgments of men. For this we readily grant and would demonstrate in what follows. Rather, he says, it is whether it had need of additions or corrections as if imperfect or incorrect. Our opponents affirm while we deny, now listen to what he says here. This is important. The importance of the question is great because the object of our opponents is no other than to transform the gospel into a new law. Did you hear that? That's what false teachers do. They transform the gospel into a new law and so to establish the righteousness of works in place of the righteousness of faith, end quote. And that's what they do. There is a righteousness of works that is that one will labor and attempt to merit by works, an attempt to merit a right standing with God, or there is a righteousness that is received by faith based upon the righteous merits of Jesus Christ alone. One is by laboring by the strength of the flesh. One is receiving with the empty hands of faith. One is by works. One is by grace alone. There's a clear contrast there. And Paul, Paul begins to unfold his experience of grace through the gospel that we might see this. And let's begin in verse 12. And, and what we're starting to see here is uh, we, we're getting a taste of, the, of a biblical doctrine of conversion here. And we're seeing the richness of the grace in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 12. And what's odd is Paul begins with his ministry, his call to ministry. So in verse 12, we see, number one, the grace of God and Paul's call to the ministry. The grace of God and Paul's call to the ministry. Verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, verse, verse 12 opens, did you notice, with a word of thanksgiving. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. He, he writes this thanksgiving concerning Christ who had enabled him and, and put him into the ministry. And it's interesting that as he opens this section concerning his calling and conversion, and as he will begin to highlight the gracious nature of the gospel that saved him, he opens up with a word of thanks or thanksgiving. You do not give thanks to another for something that you've earned, you merited, or you achieved. Right? There you have boasting. But Paul doesn't do that. He gives thanks for his call to ministry. And we will see even later for his conversion. And so he's highlighting the gracious nature of the gospel and God's activity in his life. 
And so it, it moves him to praise here. Understand that as you read Paul, not only here, but throughout the New Testament, he always sees the activity of God as the kind activity of God, the gracious activity of God. And this kind of praise to God by Paul, again and again, we find in his letters, it, it, it will just permeate Paul's life. And it permeates his theology. It permeates his, his writings. And as God's people, we should learn from Paul and his example. As we have said many times, theology leads to what? Doxology. Theology leads to doxology. That is an accurate understanding of biblical truth leads to or should lead to the increase of praise to God and the worship of God. As we grow to understand him, our understanding of him, his greatness, his glory, as we grow in understanding of the goodness and graciousness of the gospel and of the, the Lord Jesus Christ and God's gracious activity in coming to us in the gospel and saving us, it should lead to the increase of the praise of our great triune God. But again, notice verse 12. He begins to speak of his ministry. He points out that it was, notice his language, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who, his language is enabled, enabled. And enabled him. Again, Paul Again, is speaking of the gracious activity of God, and immediately he's now saying that Christ gave him inner strength, an inner strength, an inner power that was needed for faithful ministry. In other words, his his apostolic our ministerial labors were not the result of Paul mustering up his own strength. Now, with that being said, all ministers, all church leadership, elders, deacons, all ministers of the gospel need to be reminded of Paul's words here. We're Americans, right? We, we love to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? Right, Tracy? You, you gave us that expression here, solo, boot, solo bootstrapus, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. We're, we're good Americans. But here Paul's emphasizing the grace of God, our need of grace, our weakness, our need of the strength of God, the power of God, this, the saving grace of God. But not only, not only church leadership, not only the, those that are in like vocational pastoral ministry, not only the elders of the church, not just the deacons of the church, but all of us collectively as God's people in the, in the body of Christ, as we as we've all been called and gifted with spiritual gifts, and as we labor in the body of Christ in this local church together, as we exercise these spiritual gifts, all Christians, we should remind ourselves that we labor by Christ's strength and power working in and through us. Let us remember that. Now, if we have any question about Paul's words here, if, he, if he's not plain here, he'll make it plain in other places. Listen to Paul expressing this very truth as he would write to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, listen to this. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored, said Paul. I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, he said, but the grace of God, which was with me. Yeah. And next, we notice that this God-given strength was for the purpose to fulfill the mission, the ministry to which Christ would call Paul to accomplish. Look, look at verse 12 again. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. And then notice what he says. Because he counted me faithful. He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry or into the service. Now, this verse is not saying that Christ put Paul into the ministry because there was some kind of inherent worth in Paul or about Paul. No, that's not the case. Paul was set apart for ministry because of the because of God's gracious strength promised and given to him the thanksgiving to Christ at the at the opening of this verse is not contradictory he's not saying i thank god that he's enabled me but then he called me because he saw something within me now, this faithfulness is the activity of God that enabled him, that empowered him, that gave him strength. And that by that enabling grace, God calls Paul and puts him into ministry. Paul did not earn his rank as an apostle. In Galatians chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, listen to these words. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. But when it pleased God, but when it pleased God, and then Paul says, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me and called me, and then he says this, through his grace. God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, verse 16, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach among the Gentiles. You see his point there? Before he was born, before he did anything evil or good, before there was any, any sign that there could even be faithfulness in him, God set him apart. God set him apart. In this case, he says, from his mother's womb. In other places concerning Paul's theology, we know that we are set apart by God from eternity. God sets his heart on us. But here he uses the expression, from his mother's womb. So there's no mistake in this case, in Galatians 1, that he wasn't called by men, he didn't call himself, but that God called him. God set him apart. And so God called Paul. Here's the grace of God and Paul's call to the ministry. It was the gracious activity of God. And then next, notice the very end. Notice the end of verse 12. Concerning that Paul didn't call himself or set himself in a place as an apostle, but that Christ put Paul into the ministry. Christ appointed Paul to this service. Look at the end of verse 12. Putting me into this service or this ministry. The word that's used there is the word is the root word we get deacon from service. Putting me into this ministry. Again, the sovereign 
gracious activity of God. And let us remember, let us remember that our service, our service in the church is according to the sovereign distribution of gifts according to the head of the church and his power as he gifts and puts his spirit upon us in the name of Christ. And that it is Christ, that it is Christ who gives these gifts and who strengthens his people. And it is all according to his grace and his purposes. Christ's gifts call us to serve in his church. And those giftings and gifts are, are varied, aren't they? And so in various ways, we all contribute. We all serve in various ways. But it's according to the grace of God, the power of God, and according to the purpose of God. And notice he says, putting me into the ministry at the end of verse 12. We should realize when we speak of calling and service in the life of the body of Christ, that there is the spirit, the gifting, some kind of sense of an inward desire of that area of service and, and calling and gifting. But it's not just something that is inward and internal, why we do not deny that inward call of God. But that is that which has happened by the Spirit of God, that gifting, that calling, there's also be affirmed outwardly, objectively, by the local church, by the local visible body, and that that local church affirms and sees that gifting and calling. But the point in all this is, is, is that there's this work of the Spirit. It's affirmed by the, the local visible church, seen in the church. They, they see it and they affirm it. In, in the, when Paul writes to the Corinthians in that section about giftings and callings and, and how that's displayed in the body of Christ, in the, in the midst of that, he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 14.40 of this truth. It, it isn't just individuals running around deciding whatever they will do and, and that there's some kind of only inward subjective thing that has taken place, but that it is also affirmed by, by the body and by church leadership. And that's why Paul would use language in 1 Corinthians 14.40. Let all things be done decently and in order. And so it was with Paul. He was called by God. He was affirmed by the church and even the other apostles. Secondly, there, there was, number one, the grace of God in Paul's calling to the ministry. Now, number two, the grace of God in Paul's conversion. The grace of God in Paul's conversion, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, when we read about the life of Paul, when you read about his labors in the book of Acts, when you see the epistles that he wrote, when you see the persecutions that he endured, what immediately comes to mind is Paul's an incredible man. He's an incredible man. But if Paul wants to make sure that we do not misunderstand. If we were to mistake, if we were mistaken and thought God called Paul to an apostle, to be an apostle, to serve in his church, to be the great missionary that he was, because he was an incredible man. 
he opens up verse 13 with some words that begin to set it in place. Notice that opening there. Although. What? God called you, put you into ministry, right? He counted you faithful. He put you into ministry. And then all of a sudden he says, although, or some of your translation, who was, though formally, though formally, even though, what are you about to say, Paul? And he begins to describe his state before his conversion, before he came to faith in Christ, before that Damascus Road experience. And what he will describe here in verse 13, Paul, the great apostle, will describe himself as a great sinner and as a lawbreaker. Now, I think something's happening here. I think the false teachers are legalist. Now, there's two kinds of legalism. There's one form where you have false teachers and they will come into the life of the church and they will falsely begin to add, add to, uh, they'll say faith in Christ is good. That's a good place to be. That's what you should be doing. And then they will add to that a long list of man-made rules and regulations. They back up the dump truck, pile it on you, and, say you, and you have to do these things that are nowhere found in the Bible. And they shift uh, in cultures. They will shift during different time periods throughout the history of the church. But it'll be a long list of some form of legalism. And by obeying this list of rules that this teacher has come up with, you somehow stay in good standing with God. And it is wearisome and tiresome. Now, the other form of legalism is more deadly. It's, it's, it's just a direct assault upon the gospel. It's like what we see, which is probably here in this letter and probably what we find in the book of Galatians, the Galatia heresy, the Galatian heresy. And it's, it's more like this. Yes, believe the gospel, faith in Christ. Plus, plus, you have to be circumcised to be saved. That's what they were saying. You have to be circumcised. It's some form of legalism where it is the gospel, it is Jesus Christ plus something else that you must accomplish, you must achieve to be justified before God. It's, it's anything other than grace because of Christ received by faith alone. And so the, the false teachers were probably prompt, propping themselves up like the Pharisees, like Sadducees. They would lift themselves up. And, and notice the language that Paul would use concerning these false teachers. Do you remember what he said in verse 7? Go back to verse 7 of chapter 1. Desiring, here he's describing the false teachers, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And so there are the false teachers and they are affirming something like the law. You must obey the law to be justified in God's sight, have faith in Christ plus the law, maybe even other things that they had added to it. And that they were men that were capable. They were men that had accomplished such things. And now Paul comes along and says, they claim to be law keepers. I'm a great sinner. And I'm a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. Again, notice verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. He, he, he strings together 
three words here to describe what he had been before Christ. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and thirdly, an insolent man. A blasphemer. And again, he keeps doing this. He keeps hitting upon the entire moral law, the two tables of the law. He said he was a blasphemer. That is, by blasphemer, what we mean is that he spoke evil of Jesus Christ. He spoke evil of God. He blasphemed the name of God. He, he by being a persecutor of the church, he thought Jesus Christ, his teaching was false. He was a false messiah. He blasphemed God by not embracing the long-promised Messiah. He was a blasphemer. It violated the entire first table of the law. But secondly, look what else he said he was. A persecutor. Now here, what's interesting about what we're going to see here is this touches upon both tables because he's going to persecute Christ's church, God's people, and, and the people of God. And, and notice, we'll see how, how Christ responds to that. But here's an example. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 8. The book of Acts chapter 8. And as a persecutor, we're going to see that Paul was actively and aggressively persecuting the church, the church of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at chapter 8 and chapter 9, but look at chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, let's begin in verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul, which that's just the Hebrew name for Paul. Now Saul, this is Paul before his conversion, before God saved him. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And the individual that he's consenting to his death was in the previous chapter, the first martyr of the church. He was a deacon. His name was Stephen. And they stoned him. And you remember, they laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul, Paul. And Saul was consenting to his death, to Stephen's death. And at that time, notice what it says, Acts 8, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Again, we see the providence of God, even in this, in the persecution. Uh, God is working through this to cause the church to be scattered, dispersed. And what would they take with them when they were dispersed? They took the gospel with them, didn't they? Yeah. Verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen, that is his body, to his burial and made great lamentation over him. They didn't have a celebration of life. There was great lamentation. This is what funerals look like in the Bible. And they made great lamentation over him. Verse 3. As for Saul, that is Paul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And you see what kind of man he was. It's like the Gestapo showing up, looking for Jews hidden underneath the floor. Now turn over to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. Acts 9 verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats. That's the language there, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest 
and ask and ask letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were in the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, and he journeyed, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The intimate relationship between Christ and his people is the head of the church. You see how this overlaps both tables of the law as he blasphemes God, as he attacks the church. It's, it's, it's an attack, a violation of the first commandment. He doesn't love God as he ought to. And he's violating the second table. He doesn't love his fellow man like he ought to. He's persecuting the people of God. Saul, Saul, verse 4, why are you persecuting me? And then he does it again, verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And then he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Here's Paul, the persecutor. And he, he brings this out again and again as he will speak of his life before Christ, his, his life before his conversion. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says it there, 1 Corinthians 15.9, For I am, I am the least of the apostles, he says, who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Why, Paul? He says, because I persecuted the church of God. That's why. And then writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter three, verse four in Philippians three, verse four. And this this is interesting because, again, with the backdrop of the false teachers, when you read the, the, about the life and the conversion of Paul in Philippians, you, you get the very the very idea that if the if the false teachers thought they were something, that they were men walking upright, they were appeasing God by their righteous works. Paul makes it very clear. I was head and shoulders above you in the way that I lived. Watch what he says. Philippians 3, 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Five, verse five, Philippians three, five. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew, of the Hebrews, concerning the law of the highest order. I was a Pharisee. Verse six. Concerning zeal, I persecuted. Look what he says. Persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That is in comparison from men to men. It's as if Paul here, as we look at his life and what he's saying here in First Timothy, there's a bit of contrasting himself to the false teachers. You see this? It's as if he's saying, I know what they were. I know what they're like and I know what they teach. I used to be just like them. I was on mission to kill Christians. I thought righteousness came by the law. Those guys are nothing. I was head and shoulders above those guys. They think they're keeping the law. They should have seen me. That's the kind of thing he's saying there. Putting things in their proper place. But the third one, we're running out of time. The third one, the third thing he says when he strings these together, number three, he calls himself an insolent man, 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 or an injurious man. Some of your translations say, or a violent man. Our violent man. That word has to do that with the idea that he he insulted other people 
And the word has idea with deep hostility. He's insulting other people with deep hostility. It kind of reminds you of that language over in Acts where he's breathing threats, right? Against the people of God. That's the kind of man he was. Uh, let's wrap things up here and we'll go to the supper. And we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up here next week. Because the truth is, we're going to look at the... Here we're seeing the grace of God in the conversion of Paul. And I want us to see the grace of God in the gospel. But now looking at this, let's... I want to talk about just verse, especially verse 15. And then I also want to, you see verse 17? Verse 15 is just a sermon, and verse 17 is a sermon, isn't it? We can talk about the doctrine of God in verse 17. Isn't that okay, Andrew? Yeah. Talk about God being eternal, immortal, invisible. That would be, Yeah. But here we see Paul as a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, an insolent man. And what Paul deserved was not mercy. God would have been perfectly holy, righteous, and just to strike him dead on the road to Damascus. He did other people that way throughout, the, throughout biblical redemption, doesn't he? But instead of giving Paul what he deserves. Look what he says at the end of verse 13. But I obtained mercy. Obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. He's, he's, he's not making excuse for himself saying it was ignorant and unbelief. He, his point is God showed me mercy. Paul did not receive what he deserved, and that was judgment. But what, what he's now diving into, in this language that begins to unfold here, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was, and he, it, it's like overflowing. Look, look at this. It's, verse 14, exceedingly abundant. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And Paul, as a sinful man and as a lawbreaker, as a sinner, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am chief. You see, Paul was a great sinner. The chief of sinners, he says. But he was not beyond the sovereign grace and power of God. The powerful saving mercy of God through Christ pursued him and saved him. As we've said before, as the old preacher would say, Christ is like Scotland Yard. He gets his man in the end, right? And his overcoming, irresistible, powerful, sovereign grace. And when you read the account of his conversion, let's say one account, Acts chapter 9, it doesn't look, it, we, do, we don't have a picture there of Paul going... Yeah, and I spent some time considering this and thinking about it. Went off on a little uh, retreat, think about Jesus, and I eventually mustered up. I exercised my, my, the freeness of my will and converted myself. That's not what we find, is it? Christ strikes him down on the road, blinds him so that he might see and understand his own true spiritual blindness. You remember what Christ would tell Ananias when he, he, would, he said, he's going to come to your house, but he's mine. He's mine. 
And he's going to be, he's going to be an apostle. I'm going to send him to preach to the Gentiles, but he's mine. Yeah, that's how saving, that's how saving grace and power works. We have differences in way of our understanding of it, our experience of it, but make no mistake about it. God came and saved you. You did not save yourself. For I obtained mercy, and I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. We, we should remind ourselves what we're seeing here. As a church, we believe in personal conversion and the need that men, women, and children apart from Christ, apart from the saving work of Jesus, are damned in their sins and headed to hell. We believe that men, women, and children must repent of their sins and turn to Christ by faith. Yes, and that is the gracious activity and sovereign power of God saving them. But men, women, and children must be born again. They must be saved. They must personally be converted. Let me be very clear. We talk about the goodness and greatness of godly mothers and grandmothers. But on that day, your mother will not be standing in front of you before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all give an account. We all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We all must be born again and converted with repentance and faith in Christ. Paul was aggressive toward God and God's people, but God showed Paul mercy. Mercy. <laughs> These verses that we are closing with, verse 14 and 15, these are the verses, listen, these are the verses that when John Bunyan wrote his autobiography about his conversion, grace abounding to the chief of sinners, these were the verses. And the grace of the Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I, I don't think Paul makes that statement, I am chief, because he, he took the list of God's law and he went around on a global search to find if he actually committed more sins than everyone else. He's talking about his experience of grace in which we all experience that when the law of God has come, we've been faced with our guilt and our sin and then the mercy of God comes. The grace of God comes in the gospel and saves us. We all acknowledge, I'm a great sinner. I've been saved by a great sinner, Savior. A great Savior. As we close this morning and as we move toward the table, we're reminded in the table this morning as we eat the bread and drink the wine, as we, as we see the sign and the symbol of the body and blood of Christ, we're reminded that he gave his life and shed his blood for sinners like us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and like me. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, turn to Christ by faith turning from your sin, from your former way of life, and turn to Christ by faith. That is, not by works of righteousness, but it receiving Him, trusting Him, resting in Him, and He, that is Jesus the God-man, who died on the cross for sinners, who stood in our place, and in Him is forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Flee to Christ and be saved. Flee to Christ and be saved. And as we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of this rich promise, the promise of the, of the covenant, God's gracious covenant. We're reminded of the new, the, of, the, of the gospel. But as we come and we remind us all, we come and we eat and we drink by grace through faith and what Christ has accomplished for us. This table that we're about to receive. This is, this table is for Christians. 
entrance into the life of the church is by faith. And, and then you have faith in Christ. You, you're redeemed by the gospel. And then you receive the outward sign of baptism. That's the sign of uniting with the covenant people of God. But the ongoing, the ongoing ordinance or sacrament is the Lord's table because we, are, we constantly live week after week feasting upon the Lord Jesus, his body and blood for us. Here is life, eternal life. And this table is for Christians. And so if you're with us this morning, this table is for those that are, let me, let me say this clearly, because sometimes very small children recently have been coming up to the table. This table is only for those that can rightly discern the Lord's body and his death. They must understand the gospel. There must be an understanding of their sin and the gospel that is received by faith. And this table is for those not only that understand the gospel, that have been also united to the church. And that outward sign is baptism. So you, you need to have given a credible profession of faith in Christ, been baptized in the name of the triune God, and if you're a Christian here and you're from another church, you're looking for a church home, you're visiting. And if you're a part of another Christian church in good standing, that is, you haven't been disciplined, but you're here. We invite you. We invite you to come to this table. You're our brother and sister in Christ. We commune with you and with the body of Christ, God's people. But if you're under the discipline of a local church, you haven't given a credible profession of faith in Christ, or you have not been baptized in the name of the triune God, do not come to the table. But don't leave. Don't leave. Stay. And our desire is that you would hear what we've been speaking of this morning. You would hear the words concerning the table. You'd hear the gospel. And you would see with your eye the bread and, and the wine and those signs and symbols that represent the body and blood of Christ who died for guilty sinners like you and like me. And that by it, you would learn more of Christ. You would learn more of him. So let us pray this morning. Let us ask for God's blessing upon the word that we have heard and upon the table we're about to receive. Let us pray.